Stanley did an amazing job last week, um, kind of looking at this issue of materialism as it arises in the book of Amos. And one of the things that um, I appreciated about the prophets over the course of the last couple of weeks is this, is they are not beach reading, okay? Now you don't just go lay out of the beach and just open up the prophets and start digging in, right? Um, because what the prophets do oftentimes is they begin to just lay some body blows on us a little bit. They really confront us. They get in our face, rattle our cages some. God brings conviction through their words that they speak. Uh, and the book of Amos is no different. Uh, Amos was a prophet raised up by God from the southern kingdom, sent to the northern kingdom of Israel uh, because of their rebellion and sin. And Amos has some pretty difficult things to say. And so I encourage you the first week of this series to gear up and be ready to kind of work through how Amos would land some body blows in our lives. But one of the things that you notice about all the prophets, if you would read all the prophets from Isaiah to Malachi, one of the things that is consistent in each of the prophets is that God, through each of them, would confront the worship practices of his people. Over and over and over and over and over again, God comes to confront how it is the people engaged him in worship. For instance, in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 10, it says, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this of you, this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. And then you go to Malachi, the end of the prophets, in chapter 2, verse 13, he says this, and this is the second thing you do, God's confronting them. You cover the Lord's altar with tears and with weeping and with groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, whom you have been faithless though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? In Isaiah and in Malachi and everywhere between, God gets in the face of his people and he rattles their cages over how they've engaged him in worship, in their liturgy, but their lives have not matched their liturgy. In Isaiah 1, he says, your hands are full of blood. In Malachi chapter 2, he says, you've forsaken the wife of your youth. And yet you continue to bring offerings and God's not accepting them. He's turned his face from them. In fact, Jesus picks up this very same language. It comes out of Isaiah chapter 29 when Isaiah says that these people, they worship me with their mouths or with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And Jesus says the exact same thing is true of the people in his day in Mark chapter 7. And the same could be said of many in our day as well. Like there are many people, whenever they look for a church to connect into, they look for a church to belong to, a family of faith to, to become members of, one of the things on their kind of checklist or on their agenda that they're looking for is what they would consider to be good or great worship. Right? They, they want 
excellent worship. And listen, I'm not here this morning to say that you should not pursue God with excellence in all things that you do and offer everything up to him uh, to, the, to the best of his gifting and the graces that he's given you. We should do that. We should pursue excellence in all those things. But listen, there is nowhere in the Bible that God commands his people to seek good worship. You know that? There is nowhere in the Bible that God commands his people to go after great worship, however they would define that for themselves. But over and over again, while we may seek good worship, what God is seeking is true worshipers. That's what God's heart is longing for. Our heart may be longing for passionate, exciting, like fireworks going off kind of experiences Sunday after Sunday. But what God is looking for are the hearts of people who are fully engaged with Him, both in their liturgy and their lives, that are fully engaged as true worshipers. And the book of Amos is no different. Amos confronts the worship practices of the people because their liturgy and their lives are not in sync. Not in sync. And so what I want to do this morning is I want us to learn what it is to be a true worshiper from Amos, from this prophet who confronted those, these people thousands of years ago and he stands in our face today to rattle our cages a little bit as well as those in a culture who are seeking great worship while God is seeking true worshipers. So what do we learn about being a true worshiper from Amos? The first thing is this. Kind of, there's a sketch of it here in the book. And the first stroke of that sketch is this, that true worshipers, they stay anchored by the word of God. They stay anchored by God's word. True worshipers stay anchored by God's word. Many people that I talk to who are looking for good worship, what they're chasing more often than not is sensation. What they're chasing is feeling. What they're chasing is kind of this experience, this sensational experience. And they're often unconcerned whether or not that experience has roots that stretch deep into God's word. All right, and so what, but what God is looking for himself is those who are relating to him as he's revealed himself to be. Because they, and they're anchored by the word of God. See, hypocritical worship, that the kind of worship that Amos is confronting in his day is a type of worship that is shaken loose from the moorings of God's word. Let me give you a couple of texts in Amos to show you this. In Amos chapter 8, verses 11 and 12, Amos speaks of a day that's coming for his people. And he says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for wa water, and not a famine of bluebell either. Remember the great bluebell famine of 2015? Like some of you almost died, right? That's not the kind of famine that's coming, he says, but a hearing of the words of the Lord. That's the kind of famine that's coming, that God's word is going to dry up amongst his people. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east, and they shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. In the same way that God says that a famine would come when the heavens are shut up and the rain does not fall to water the earth and cause crops to grow that the people might feast and feed, 
so also, he says, there would be a famine of his words that his people could not feed on his word any longer. No matter where they go to search for it, they could travel to the east coast, they could go to the west coast, they could go to the Arctic Circle or Antarctica, and they will not find it, he says. There'll be a famine of his word. It will dry up amongst his people. But why? I believe there's a direct correlation between the famine that God says is coming for his people when his word dries up and is no longer heard. And listen, Amos' day is not much different than ours. We live in a day in which pulpits, gotta be careful here, we live in a day in which pulpits oftentimes, what comes out of pulpits is more pop psychology than it is biblical revelation. Right, where a, a pastor will take a text and he will launch off of that text into the latest book that he read about three ways to improve this or that in your life. Right, there is a famine that, has, that, that Amos predicts would come in the lives of his people unless we are living in much the same era. And I believe one of the, the direct correlation in Amos 8 to Amos chapter 2. If you go back to Amos chapter 2 in verses 11 to 12, it says this. And I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. It is not, it is, uh, I'm sorry, it, is it not indeed so, O people of Israel? In other words, didn't I raise up some of your sons to prophesy and raise up some of your sons to become Nazarites? Nazarites were people who made a, a vow to the Lord of devotion to him. So there were certain things like they didn't shave their hair, right? They didn't drink strong drink. And so that was a part of their devotion to the Lord and this vow that they had made. And God says, didn't I raise up your sons to speak my words and have this vow of devotion to God? And then he goes on to say, but you, verse 12, made the Nazarites drink wine. You made them break their vow of devotion to God. And you commanded the prophets saying, you shall not prophesy. In other words, in Amos chapter 2, the people are saying, they want to shake off God's revelation. They want to shake off the, the moorings of God's word, right? They want to shake off his commands and precepts. They want to shake off who God has shown himself to be. And so in Amos chapter 8, God says, okay, if, that's, if you're going to command the prophets not to prophesy, there's going to be a day that comes in which my word will dry up among you. In which you'll no longer have a taste for it. You'll no longer be able to feast on it or feed on it. And Stanley mentioned the text in Amos chapter 7, I believe it was, last week, when the priest says to Amos, listen, you ain't got to go home, but you can't stay here, right? That's basically what he tells him, right? Don't prophesy here anymore. Go back down south and prophesy. We don't want to hear from you anymore, right? And that is what, what, what is taking place in the, in the book of Amos, because the people are no longer anchored by the word of God, and when God is seeking true worshipers, he's seeking men and women, students, young adults, whose lives would have moorings to them. They would be anchored in his word. Let me see if I can break it down for you a little bit. With, over the vacation, um, myself and my son and my father-in-law and my brother-in-law all uh, rented an inshore charter and did a little fishing out in Pensacola Bay. And so we were out there on the bay, and our guide, when he picked us up at the dock, man, he had this sweet 27-foot center console, brand new uh, kind of bay boat with a Mercury 350-horsepower, four-stroke engine on the back. 
some, that's some change right there, okay? If you don't know anything about boat, that's some change, okay? And so this, this four-stroke engine, it purred like a kitten, right? It was just so quiet and powerful. Right? It could get you anywhere the fish were. He was saying the day before he'd been eight miles out offshore as well. And so doing some deep sea stuff. And so the, this boat could get you to where the fish were and it had two pieces of technology on it to keep you, keep you where the fish were. It had a shallow water anchor on the back. If you don't know what a shallow water anchor is, it's these, if you've seen boats going down the highway, they have these two poles sticking up to the left and the right of the engine. Right, those are shallow water anchors. They deploy off the back of the boat and they kind of fold out and they sink down into the bottom of the lake or of the, the bay or of the channel. And they hold you in place so that as the wind blows or the current flows, it doesn't push you along with it. You stay locked in position. They anchor you in place. But he also had a brand new Minn Kota Riptide saltwater trolling motor with iPilot technology. Now, iPilot technology, listen, this is cool stuff. I'm just getting geeked up about it. You may not really care. This is cool stuff. iPilot technology has a feature called Spot Lock. And Spot Lock, what it allows you to do is it allows you to hover out in deeper water. Those shallow water anchors are good from anywhere from 8 to 15 feet, depending upon the size of them you have. But you get out to 30, 40 feet of water out in the middle of the bay, and they don't reach the bottom anymore. And so, but spot, what spot lock does is it allows you to get in position over whatever structure underneath you're trying to fish, and you hit a button on that trolling motor, and that trolling motor keeps you in that spot, regardless of which direction the wind's blowing from. If it's blowing from the right of the boat, right, the trolling motor's going to turn automatically by itself to the left and give enough power to move you back over onto that spot that you were on. If it's blowing from the right, it turns, right, it, it, it turns whichever way you lock it in in that one spot and it keeps you there to stay on top of whatever it is that you're trying to fish. It anchors you. Now listen, before the days of shallow water anchors and before the days of iPods, there were big iron weights on the decks of boats called anchors. And they had a chain or a rope that you threw over the side and they held you in position. They kept you from drifting. And listen, church, true worshipers have their lives anchored, held down by the word of God and it keeps them from drifting to the left or to the right as the winds of the culture howl around you and want to push you in one direction or another. There are some who come out of much more... Um, formal environments, worship environments, structured environments, and sometimes, listen, sometimes you think true worship is actually very, very intellectual, very mind-stimulating. There are others who come out of very emotional environments and think that true worship is just sensational passion and feeling. But listen, I want to tell you this something. The Word of God doesn't, doesn't prescribe either of those types of worship. It keeps you from drifting into cold intellectualism or just kind of this frothy frenzy of emotionalism and sensationalism. It holds you in place because God's word governs and guides how it is that we respond to him because worship, church, is always a response. It's not something that we work up ourselves by our emotions or we work up ourselves by our intellect. It's always a response. God has revealed himself to us in his word. And as we respond to that in worship, in song, in adoration, in heartfelt devotion to God, God's word anchors us and shows us 
how it is that we should respond and keeps us from drifting to the right or to the left. It's an anchor for us. True worshipers are anchored by God's word. So listen, if God's word for you, if, if God's word for you is not palatable, right? I, I, sometimes in, in church I feel, can I say this? I feel kind of like a, a, a father trying to feed their infant son sometimes. Here's what I mean by that, right? You, you, you kind of take the can of peas, right, when they first start eating that mashed up nasty stuff. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Right, that can of peas and you put a spoon in there and you go, open the mouth, here comes the airplane into the hangar, right? The train's coming down the track, choo, 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 it's going through the tunnel. Stick it in, right? Here's the good stuff, right? And sometimes, listen, if there's not a palate for the word of God in your life, sometimes what we're looking for more in corporate gatherings is a lot of entertainment with a little bit of substance. And could mean for you that God's word is not anchoring you because there's no palate for it in your life. See, one of the ways that you anchor yourself by God's word is by being, in, by being here Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday as we open the service with scripture readings, as we move through the service with prayer and reading of scripture, as we open the word to proclaim it publicly, being here Sunday after Sunday and allowing it to shape and anchor you and keep you from drifting. Another way that you can anchor yourself with the word of God is by renew classes that we have every quarter. We just finished up a round of them. We're coming back with another round of them in August and actually Brian's gonna teach a class on worship in August about how it is that we respond to this God who's revealed himself in his word. Another way is maybe starting a men's group or a women's group. I know there's a guys group that meets every Saturday morning and they're digging through the Gospel of John together right now. Maybe some of you ladies would spearhead a women's group that would meet around the word, right? You can have some coffee and convo as well. But meet around the word and dig in and allow it to anchor you so you're not blown to and fro with every wind of doctrine, as James says later on in the New Testament. Because God's word is an anchor, and true worshipers, they're anchored by his word. I, I, we could talk about this for a lot longer, but I gotta move. Second thing that we learn about true worshipers in the book of Amos is this, is that they marry, they marry righteousness to ritual. They marry righteousness to ritual. Listen, when you hear the word ritual, oftentimes in evangelical circles, right, it's often as like a curse word, <laughs> right, because we think tradition and ritual is bad, but that's not at all, the Bible doesn't ever say that tradition and ritual are bad, but they are incomplete when they're not married to a life of righteousness underneath them. Listen, in Amos chapter 5, verses 21 to 24, Amos uses very similar language to Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 1, listen to what he says, he says, I hate I despise your feast. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen. What I find interesting about this particular passage is this, is that the people were, were worshiping in a biblical fashion based upon God's revelation in the Old Testament, based upon his Old Testament law and commands. They were observing the feast. They were observing the assemblies. They were singing songs. They were bringing the offerings that God had prescribed. 
and yet God says, I hate it, I despise it, I take no delight in it, I will not accept it. Take it away from me, I will not look upon it, I will not listen. So what's going on here? They're going to the feasts. What kind of feasts were they going to? They were going to the feast of, uh, of unleavened bread, right? The feast of unleavened bread in the Old Testament commemorated Passover. Remember the story of God coming into Egypt and rescuing his people out of slavery and bondage and captivity and leading them toward the land of promise? And that night there before they are let free finally by Pharaoh after the nine plagues, the tenth one comes, a death angel flies over the, the nation of Egypt and kills all the firstborn sons other than, other than those of Israel, those who had covered their doorposts in the blood of this spotless lamb that they had slain. And they had to leave so hastily that the bread was unleavened. And so they commemorated a feast in honor of that experience Every year they would make a pilgrimage and celebrate God's redeeming work of bringing their forefathers out of the land of Egypt. They were still celebrating that feast. They were still celebrating the feast of weeks as they celebrated God's gracious deliverance of Israel from all of her enemies when she came into the land and his provision of crops at the harvest. They would give thanks to God on account of and celebrate what he had provided. They would celebrate the feast of booths or tabernacles which celebrated God's provision and guidance for them as they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years living in temporary homes, in booths. And God was worshiping the tabernacle, not the temple. So they celebrated God's guidance and his protection during the midst of that season. Each of these feasts, it commemorated God's activity, God's work, what God had done in the lives of his people to graciously covenant himself with them. They were still celebrating all these feasts that God had prescribed and yet Israel had violated the covenant and been unfaithful. So in no uncertain terms, God says, I hate, I despise, I will not receive, I won't look upon all of your religious activity. They were still offering the offerings, the whole burnt offerings he speaks of here. You know what a whole burnt offering was? It was a whole burnt offering. It was the entire animal put on the altar and the fire was lit and the whole thing was consumed and it represented before God. God consumed the entire thing and it was this act of the worshiper who brought that offering to the altar saying, God, in the same way that this entire animal is consumed by you, and devoted to you, so also my life in totality, in the fullness and wholeness is offered up to you in devotion. It's yours. Consume me. They continue to offer grain offerings, giving thanks to God for his provision at the harvest. They continue to offer grain offerings to maintain relationship with God, continue to give him thanks for all that he had provided. They continue to bring peace offerings Right? The peace offering was a little bit different. You had the blood of, or you had the fat around the kidneys and the liver and the entrails. I know you're hungry now, right? Everybody's ready for lunch. They pulled that out, set it on the altar, lit it a fire, and God consumed that portion of the offering. The rest of the offering then was divided amongst the priest and the people, and they would eat it together symbolizing that this offering that had been made was to this, this, this unity or this bond that existed between God and the priests and the people all together in covenant with Yahweh, all together in covenant with the Lord. There was peace between them all. They're still bringing those offerings. And yet even as they offer those offerings there on the altar, they had been unfaithful. They were far from anything 
far from total devotion to the Lord. Right? They kept offering grain offerings probably just to try and stay on God's good side after all the things that they were continuing to live, all the practices in their lives. And their peace offerings were kind of a sham because they continued to live in this unrepentant condition as they sinned against each other and against the Lord. Not only did they have all that, they had music. Some of you are like, ah, another one? Not as long. They, they played musical instruments and they sang songs. God had invited them to worship Him on account of who He was and what He had done in their national history and in their personal history in their lives. And they would sing songs. They would offer offerings. They would celebrate feasts. And all of this, God says, I will not receive and I will not listen. And here's why, here's why church. Because the biblical worship, the, even the good worship that they were engaged in had become a filter in their life. You know what a filter is in digital photography? Some of you are on Instagram or on Facebook or on Snapchat or wherever it is. You know what a filter is? It's this, it's this, this, this layer that you lay on top of an image to make it appear to be something that it is not in reality. You know what I'm saying? Right? Because in reality, steaks are not green, right? And so you're eating a steak, you're like, man, I got I I Instagram that, I got a Snapchat. You take a picture of it, right? Lay this filter on top of it that lays this kind of a iridescent kind of glow to it. I'm, I'm just killing this steak, right? In reality, that steak is not that color or that filter that you laid on top of it. Also, things exist in color, not in black and white. So you, you, you can layer a filter on top of any image to make it look and appear a certain way. And their worship had become a filter for them. And listen, while there may be filters for our faces, some of us are like, praise Jesus. There is no filter for your soul. And through all of the religious activity, God saw what was happening in their lives. Through all their liturgy and proper pre- observance of procedure and ritual, God saw through all of it down to the heart. And he saw how they lived. And he says, I will not receive it. I will not accept it. If you're going to live as if worship is a filter for you. And then he goes on in verse 24 to say this. There's a but in verse 24. Right? I'm not going to accept this. I won't receive this. I hate, I despise all this. And he says in verse 24, but he says, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. You see, the problem in, 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 in Israel and Amos' day is that while they were they were observing proper procedure and practice in the temple and in worship, and offerings, and feasts, and assemblies, and song. They were looking at their, they were treating their brother and sisters as if they were something less than those who were made in the image of God and redeemed by his powerful and personal work in their lives. They were ju- Listen, I, we, we could spend a lot of time on this, and we're going to come back to it probably two more times over the course of this series, but that word justice that word justice in this context, it means right behavior toward others whereby they taste or experience what is good and pleasant. Right behavior, right conduct toward people in my life whereby they experience what is good and pleasant. 
notes, and I remember back in college going to a college ministry event uh, that the Baptist Collegiate Ministries of the state of Louisiana was putting on. It was hosted in our, the town that my college was located in, Alexandria, Louisiana, or just across the river from us. It was an Emmanuel Baptist Church. Emmanuel Baptist Church was a downtown, kind of city center type, historic Baptist church in Alexandria. Got all the old wooden pews and stained glass windows and the choir loft and chancel. I mean, it was, it was what you think of when you think of like, if there's such a thing as a Baptist cathedral, this was a Baptist cathedral, okay? And this is where the event was hosted. Now, being in downtown Alexandria, which is not like downtown Dallas, I'll give you that, but being in downtown Alexandria, there were people who wandered the streets, homeless individuals, homeless men and women who wandered the streets, and that's where they lived. They had no homes. And I can remember as college students descending upon this, this, this sanctuary, this beautiful sanctuary, and the worship band would kick up every session as it started, and the speakers would get up and challenge us to live uh, godly lives that would bring honor and glory to Christ. And the, the students would raise their hands and close their eyes, and people would be in, in just, just locked in in worship and singing of songs. And then I remember lunchtime on the second day, we all walked outside, and they were serving lunch in the courtyard. And they had uh, ham and cheese sandwiches and chips and drinks all set up out there in the courtyard. And there was this, this elderly homeless man who wandered down the street. And I could not help but be overwhelmed by this conviction in that moment. That there are 30 leftover sandwiches and 30 leftover bags of chips and 30 leftover water bottles sitting on the table after everyone had had their fill. So I went over to the man and I said, sir, there's some leftover food over here. Would you care for lunch? And he walked over alongside of me and he, we, we sat down and he ate his sandwich and we talked briefly and then, you know, he was kind of on his way after that. And then we walked back into that room and there's everyone else, hands raised, eyes closed, singing to Jesus. And it was just such a stark reality. And it made me wonder how many people walk by men and women created in the image of God whom God has loved enough to send His Son to redeem and rescue from the punishment of their sin. And we walk right by them on our way into a corporate worship experience where we're going to raise our hands but we refuse to do justice and let it roll like an ever-flowing stream. Listen, that... I'm going to go ahead and say, I get it wrong a lot. A lot. By God's grace, I think that was one time I got it right. See, true worshipers, they marry ritual to righteousness in their lives. And we're going to unpack that a lot more in the next several weeks. I'm just going to let it linger there for a moment. Final thing, and we're done. True worshipers, they also seek a person, not a place. See, what was going on in Israel in that day, they apparently, when they went to perform these rituals, they went to one of three sacred sites. They went to Bethel, they went to Gilgal, or they went to Beersheba. 
And in Amos chapter 5, verses 4 to 6, Amos says, For thus says the Lord of the house of Israel, Seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel. Do not enter into Gilgal. Do not cross over to Beersheba. For Gilgal shall surely go into exile, and Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live. He says, don't seek Bethel. Bethel had become a place of significance in Israel's history for several reasons. First, it was where Jacob had first encountered the Lord and the Lord had rearticulated the promise to Jacob that he had made to Abraham and Isaac. And in that meeting, God said to Jacob, behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. And Jacob called that place Bethel, the house of God. Later in his life, Jacob meets God there again for a second time, and it was then that God told him that his descendants would no longer be called the house of Jacob, but the house of Israel. As he said to Jacob, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply, a nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to your Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. And from that time forward, Bethel became a sacred place for the people of Israel as it represented a place of God's promised presence with his people and blessing toward his people. And so they would go there to worship. Gilgal became a place of great significance because it was the first place the people came to when they crossed the Jordan River and came into the land of promise. They'd been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. When they cross over, it's the first place they stop at. They set up 12 commemorative stones there to remember God's leadership, bringing them from where they were to where they are. For the 12 tribes, they set up, each sets up a stone and a monument to commemorate that. It was there that people recommitted themselves to the Lord by circumcising all the males. I bet that was a fun day. And the eating of the first fruits of the ground of the promised land. First, first meal that they shared together in the promised land as the manna ceased at that point in Joshua chapter 5. It was there that the Lord spoke personally to Joshua and promised him victory in their, in their military conquest as they sought to move into the land of Canaan. It was there that Saul, the first king of Israel, was coronated. So it became a sacred site in Israel that represented God's promise and his faithfulness to keep his promises and his people's victory over their enemies. So they would go there to worship to this sacred place. Beersheba, finally, It was there where Abraham made a covenant with Abimelech and and Abimelech said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Also, it was there that God spoke to Isaac and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. In addition, it was there where the Lord spoke to Jacob, promising that if they would go down into Egypt, he would make them a great nation and he would bring them out one day. And so Beersheba became a sacred place where they would worship as they commemorated God's presence with their forefathers before them and his promised presence with them today. So these three places they would go to participate in public corporate worship for feasts and festivals, to sing songs and make offerings and remember all these great things in these great places. And God says to them, don't go there, don't go there, and don't go there. He says, come here. Come to me. Seek me and live. Don't seek a place, but seek a person. See, what Israel had fallen into was the same trap that you and I fall into oftentimes. 
of thinking that we can kind of somehow reinvigorate ourselves maybe by going back to some of those sacred places in our past, right? That camp that maybe we came to faith at as a child where we still have like fingernail marks on the pews because we didn't, we were fighting and resisting. Or maybe that if we just go to that conference, that conference is going to fill me and reinvigorate me. I'm going to be right with God because I went and got a bunch of teaching and instruction. Or I'm going to have a special anointing if I go to this renowned pastor's church and sit under his leadership and teaching. And God says to us, as he said to them, don't seek a place. Seek a person. Come to me. Find life in me. Find health and wholeness in me. Find your healing in me. Find your significance and purpose in me. Find your meaning and trajectory for life in me. Come to me, Israel. Come to me, church. And listen, there is no, there is no clearer place in the Bible where we see God's invitation to come to him than in his revelation and willingness to come to us and the sending of his son. You see, true worshipers, they're not, they're, they're not, listen, be careful here, they are not over, over, overly, that's the word I was looking for, overly reliant on somebody to set an atmosphere for them whenever they come into corporate worship. And I'm not saying that churches that use intelligent lighting and there's like, blinding stuff all in your eyes whenever you're trying to sing. And they have fog machines and they have you know, big screens with stuff, just laser light show, all that kind of... I'm not saying that any of that is wrong in and of itself. What I'm saying is true worshipers, true worshipers that the Father seeks, they don't need someone to set an atmosphere for them because their hearts are being radiated because they're anchored to God's Word. And so day after day... They're in the Word of God, seeing the person of Christ. And there is a righteousness that's married to their ritual so that their liturgy on Sunday is, is held up by their lives throughout the week. Imperfectly, yes, but in process. So that whenever they walk into service, they're not seeking a place that's going to be like tricked out and really cool, but what they're seeking is a person to come pour their hearts out with their brothers and sisters before their Lord who has saved and redeemed them by the sending of his Son. Those are the kinds of worshipers that the Father is seeking. And so as we close, let me ask you, where are you? Are you seeking great worship? Or are you aiming to be a true worshiper? Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that because of your Son that we don't need to be overly reliant on atmospheres or environments. While there are things that are distracting in our uh, corporate gatherings and things that can stimulate us in our corporate gatherings, God, what we are relying upon is your Holy Spirit shaping and forming us by your word as we stay anchored to it so that we don't drift to the left or to the right. And that we're living day after day in ways that aspire to have our lives match our liturgy on Sundays.
And so we walk into this place not seeking a place, but a person together as a family, lifting our hearts to him in adoration and praise. Would you make that true about us? As your church in this community. Would you raise up a church of true worshipers who are not seeking a place but a person, who are not going through motions and rituals, but are living a life that is consecrated to you and that are guided and governed by the revelation of yourself in your Son, and in your Word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.